Okay, welcome to episode 37 of Running Matters. My name is Matt North. I'm joined by my co-hosts today, Paul Hadfield and Brett Davidson. How you going, guys? Good, Matty. Very good. And our special guest today is Craig Alexander. Thanks for giving up your time today, Crowey. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to sharing your story. Before we get into it, uh, I'd like to thank our partners, Ranala, Filter Brewing, Goo Energy, Guy Me Allied Health, Fractal Running Caps, and Swimguard Pool Fence Certification. It's quite the list, isn't it? It's a big list, mate. What do you think of the uh, Filter XBA, Crowey? Well, it's nice. I'm only three or four mouthfuls into it, but I'll give it the thumbs up so far. Tastes all right, eh? Yeah, it's good. Very good. And we should thank uh, Jimmy Carroll for doing the editing behind the scenes. Doing a good job there, Jimmy. Um, so I see you down at Southside Masters and Southo Cross Country a bit. How are the kids enjoying the running? Yeah, well, they love it. The eldest one certainly does. She's Lucy. She's uh, she's quite the accomplished little runner. She's only 14. Um, and really because of her, it's the reason I'm, I'm still training so hard, I think, um, She's recently changed running squads and I go down and run with them and it's quite a serious squad so I have to stay fit to be able to keep up and hold my own there. So, um, but uh, no, it's good. It's I mean, The kids love it. I, what I love about Southside Masters is just to relax the atmosphere. Like you've got some some athletes down there who have represented at different levels but you've also just got people who are down there for fun and all ages, you know, you've got in the, the short course you've got four and five-year-olds trotting around with their mum and dad up to 70 and 80 year olds in the, in the longer races and the walks so it's a really relaxed vibe um, and same with the cross country on Saturdays I've, I've really enjoyed it the last couple of years so you know especially going to different parts of the na- I mean we live in a great spot right so we've got a couple of national parks around here and there's certainly some good trails and loops to do and with Southern Cross Country Club they sort of rotate the the locations and you get to run on a lot of great trails yeah it's good it's great it's good fun yeah, I'm a, I'm a convert this year too. Yeah, enjoy the cross country. Nice, mm. informal, and yeah. just fun. The kids can come along. And yeah. They have the uh, the little snake race as yeah. well for the kids. It's good. Mate, I've, I've actually had a crack at the snake race. Um, <laughs> did you dominate? Well, I, I hung back with my youngest daughter, but I did take the snake at the end of it. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> you got to refuel these things. Absolutely. Blue <laughs> Mate, my first uh, run at Saturday cross country, I, I think I lined up next to you, Crowey, and I was a little bit intimidated. We got to the top of the hill at Grace Point, coming out of the school there, and I was still next to you, and I've gone, holy shit, there's something wrong. Either he's having a real bad day, or I've just gone out way too hard. Like you always do. Like I always do. And then we hit the flat, and just like the road runner, beep, beep. Yeah. <laughs> he was gone. You come up against some quality quality runners there. Ollie Raymond, who represented Australia World Cross Country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also Kyle, who's represented Australia at the Paralympics. He's there every yeah. every Saturday. He's a great. He's like a fifteen minute five k guy on the track. So maybe even quicker. Um, hope I haven't sold him short there. But yeah, no, it's good. Grace Point's one of my favourite little circuits. And uh, what I like to do on a Saturday, though, if I'm building up for a triathlon, I like to really give it to myself on the bike in the morning. Yeah. Get a bit of fatigue in the legs, and then come and I think it's good. Good strength training. Cross country is great strength anyway. Mm. Um, but very specific for triathlon if you can ride before it. And I know a few of the boys, I know Andrew Cross and a couple of the other guys who do triathlons, they ride hard Saturday morning and then turn up and do the, the little derby in the afternoon. So it's a great specific little hit out. Yeah. And you can do, you've normally got the option to do a five or a ten as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it, it's, it's nice now they put them on the same time. I used to like to do the longer one, but it was on later. 
and the kids would get restless and want to leave. So I love it now that they, they're both on at the same time, 2.30, and you can get it done and get out of there. Yeah, it's a good option. Okay, so in 2006, you won the inaugural uh, Half Ironman World Championships. Then in 2008, you claimed the Hawaiian Ironman World Championships for the first time. They say nothing beats a Hawaii win. What was it like to, uh, to win your first Hawaiian Ironman? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, I, it's hard to put into words, but yeah, it was, um, it was my life's work. You know, it's something, I mean, I grew up doing other sports. I grew up mainly soccer. I didn't start doing triathlons until I was 20 or 21, but I had seen the Hawaiian Ironman on television and watched it every year and knew the race quite well just from being a spectator, I guess a fan, and, and seeing it on the wide world of sports. And then obviously Welsh, she won it in 94, and really that was the springboard that got me into the sport. And, you know, I was, I was a pro athlete for 13 or 14 years though before I went to Hawaii because uh, I sort of found my niche in the US on the short course circuit. Uh, and things, I guess they say things happen for a reason. I, I was enjoying the racing over in the US, um, mainly Olympic distance races and halves, and I hadn't lost a race over the half Ironman distance for two or three years, but there was no actually actual official sanctioned world championship until 06. And 06 was the first time they, I guess, branded it as 70.3. Um, they used to just call them half Ironmans. In 2006, they branded them as 70.3s, and there was actually a, a global circuit that culminated with the world champs. And yeah, as I said, I hadn't lost a race over that distance, and it was probably my favourite distance at the time, but... Winning that world title in 06 really was what led me to Kona because I qualified that day to go to Kona the following year. and It had been on my mind when was the right time to go and it felt like that was the right time. So I guess getting to Kona and then winning on my second try, it, it seems like I had immediate success there. And I guess I did. I finished second and then first, but it was something that I built up to for a decade or more. So it's hard to really put into words what it feels like. Um, because in some respects it is just another race and that's what you tell yourself and I think that's you know you have different mental strategies to try and stay calm uh, minimise the anxiety and the stress leading into a race and uh, so all those things I was saying to myself you know it really is just another race um, but it is it's so much more to our sport I think when you're in the moment it's, it is another race but looking back now and immediately afterwards you see it's 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 extremely important. It's like one of the monuments, I guess, of triathlon. So um, very fulfilling to win. Uh, but you don't really, well, I don't know. I, I can't speak for anyone else. I never really reflected on it immediately because once I got a taste for it, I wanted more. And after winning in 08, I immediately started concentrating on 2009. You know, I remember at the press conference in 08, it was the one question that just kept coming up. Only three men have been able to defend only three men um, obviously that's Dave, Mark and Tim and so I just got it in my mind that I wanted to be number four on that list and you know I was very lucky I had Dave Scott as a mentor at the time and he said to me it's, it's going to be different it's going to be harder you're going to have more demands on your time um, and a whole lot of other different scenarios that you didn't have and he was the right man to have in my corner at that time because obviously he was one of the guys who had defended so he knew about the unique challenges that were ahead and as it turned out, I needed all 12 months to to get ready again. So, yeah, it's not like when I won it the first time to answer your question that you dwell on it and you think, oh, how good am I? Or um, I understood how important it was and I was, you know, over the moon. It was one of my life goals, but I also wanted to defend. That became the next goal. So that's mm -hmm. where all the attention goes to. 
and you did. You went back in, in 2009 and you won the game. In 2011, at 38, you achieved what no one else had done in triathlon and uh, you won both world championships, the, the half, or the 70.3 and, and the world championship. Um, and by winning your third Hawaiian Ironman, you set a new world record time, which was eight hours and three minutes. So can you tell us what the splits were, just so people get an idea? It was a course record. I know everyone loves world record. I think it was a, the thing about triathlon is it's hard to normalise between courses. So, yeah, it was the fastest time ever on that course. And in fairness, they have changed the course a couple of times throughout its history and again recently. So, But, yeah, let's, let's roll with record. It sounds great. So we'll roll with that. Um, I think the splits were, I want to say, 50 minutes for the swim, 4.23 on the bike. I think the marathon was 243 or 244 thereabouts. So, um, and and then two transitions as well. So, yeah, all added up to 803 and 56. So, as it turns out, 12 seconds under the previous record, which had stood for 15 years. Oh, wow. And, and who was the previous record holder? Luke Van Leer from Belgium, who was a phenomenal athlete, a two time winner in Hawaii. Um, yeah, and he held the record for a long time. Actually, that was the first year he raced there in 90. 96 when he broke the record so um, yeah incredible and that's since been broken it has twice yeah. so Patrick Langer two years ago went 80 low 803s I think mm. and then last year went 752 so that's a big chunk a big, big chunk off and yeah I mean I think the boys are, are really and the girls are pushing the envelope now I will say with any race in Hawaii, it's very dependent on the conditions as well. So, um, you know, I, I know in the, all the years I raced there, 2008 was the toughest in terms of the wind. Um, and I think they've had a couple of mild years there. So they're dual windy year, although I have a few friends who live on the island and they told me that, they don't know if it's climate change or whatever, but the trade winds don't really hit that much in October anymore. So okay. the last few years, and I know I was a beneficiary of that as well, you don't get the hellacious winds that you hear some of the older guys like Norman Stadler. I heard in 2004 people were just getting blown off their bikes. It was so windy and he was such a strong biker. He actually had a 17 or 18 minute lead over second place off the bike that year. Um, which when you, when you see splits like that, you know, it's windy. Um, we haven't seen that sort of thing. So typically when the wind doesn't, it, it always blows to some degree there, but when it's not as windy, the groups tends to stay together more yeah. on the bike. Um, so it probably favours the stronger bikers a little less the milder conditions. Mm. So, yeah, it's very condition dependent. But it is, it's a challenging course. I mean, there's nearly, I want to say, 2,000 metres of climbing over the 180K. So it's not a flat course. Not at all. No. But um, the road surface is immaculate. So when it's not as windy, mm. you do carry a lot of momentum over those rolling hills. Right. So it's, it's a... Yeah. Com- the personality of the course when there's, the winds are lighter is completely different. Mm. Um, what, what about the uh, sort of average temperatures for your three winds? What, what sort of heat were you dealing with? I want to say 2009 was the hottest. It felt the hottest. That's sort of a subjective feeling. But also looking back, um, I have a friend who keeps a spreadsheet on, the, on these sort of statistics. And I mean, if you look historically, you can Google what the average temperatures are the first or second week in October, and it doesn't fluctuate too much. Of course, you can have days that are outliers, but he keeps a spreadsheet on the bike and run times, mm. and I think that's pretty indicative. And in 2009, I want to say there was only six or seven runs under three hours, 
And there was only one under two hours 50, which was myself. I ran 248. Mm. And I remember that year running into the energy lab. They had a, the race organizers had a, like a thermometer set up. I don't know who thought that would be a good idea to let, <laughs> let the athletes know the temperatures they're running in the lab, but it was good psychology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it was reading 108 or 109 Fahrenheit. So it's like, yeah, it's hot. 40 degrees. Yeah. Nice. But I, th- I think. It's on record as being 31 or 32, but when you get out into the lava field, you get a lot of reflected heat off mm. the black top, the lava. So, yeah, it's, it's hot. It's hot out there. Um, <laughs> so I want to say 09 was the, the hottest year. You say that with a bit of a smile on your face. You obviously embrace the heat and uh, punch through. Yeah, well, I think you've got to. Um, you know, there's always a lot of talk. Some people are better, some are not. And, and that's true, I guess, to some degree. But at the end of the day, I'd never done a sweat test. I didn't know if I was a good sweater or not. I just understood the challenge that lay ahead and thought, well, I, I need to acclimate. I need to do all the things I can do. Mm. There's certain things you can control as an athlete. And one of those is going to a similar climate and training in it. So I did that. Mm. Um, and also, you know, and when you do that, working out cooling strategies, hydration strategies that work for you. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was, I was very diligent with all of that. Um, you know, in the run, different things to keep cool, and um, and I made sure I stuck to it throughout. The, it's easy to to miss an aid station or um, go away from your plan, but I made sure I stuck to I stuck to the plan as best I could. And it's hard, and I think part of it too is one of the things I noticed when I got there the first time is it's all anyone talked about in race week, mm. and I just was determined not to let it worry me too much. I knew it would be hot. I was prepared for it to be very, very hot. Um, you mentioned acclimatising where did you do that? I did a couple of uh, stints in Kona itself and I used to go there when it was hotter than October Um, so I'd often race there in June and do a week or 10 days of training there in July Um, and I'd be up in Colorado which is very very hot in summer it's a different kind of heat, it's much drier but you still can get some of the adaptations and I would do a sauna protocol as well for 2 or 3 weeks before getting to to Kona on the bike in the sauna or no just sitting there, just I, sitting there. I, I would I would train I would either do a ride or a run and then hop straight into the sauna okay um, not quite as specific as actually being able to train in a heated room mm. if you can obviously with the specificity of training you want to do as close to possible as what you're going to be subjected to in the race mm. um, but the sauna where I was training was very was very small uh, it wasn't possible to train in there. All often I'd run on the spot in there or do push-ups and sit-ups in there to try and get the core body temperature up. But all the literature I'd read, it said that, you know, you want to train immediately before because then your core body temperature will already be elevated and then you step straight in. And, yep. and I noticed throughout the two or three weeks of doing that those sauna treatments that the adaptations were occurring. Hmm. I wouldn't start sweating until longer and longer of each session um, or further into the session. I wouldn't sweat as much. And also just, I think, a mental adaptation. It just wouldn't feel as hot. Mm. And I know by the end of the two or three weeks, I'd often be thinking, I don't even know if this thing's switched on. It doesn't feel as hot as it had two weeks Mm. ago. And I think then you you realise that your body has made some changes on a physiological level and also mentally you just learn to embrace it a bit more, accept what it is and, and deal with it better. I guess we're talking to Rory Darkins about uh, the idea of the psychology. You, your brain's not perceiving the threat anymore because it's so used to it. Yeah. So it's not going to have those adaptations like over sweating, I guess. So. Yeah, I think that, you know, 
sport, like a lot of things, there's such a mental side to it. And they say one of the, yeah, I mean, anything that you're fearful of or anything that can impact you, expose yourself to it. Mm. And then at the very least, you're going to minimize the knock-on effect mentally um, because there's no question you can start or cause a lot of things to happen just from your attitudes and your thoughts. And those adaptations for better or worse, we'll start based on how you're thinking and feeling. Manifesting so, physically. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I truly believe that, the mind-body connection. So, yeah, I think it's important just to expose yourself to heat. And, and I know not every session, but a lot of my longer brick sessions wouldn't finish until 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Mm. And sometimes I just deliberately go out and train right through the middle of the day. Mm. Um, you know, the whole premise of training is consistency and, and doing that work over time. So I think that implies recovering well. So you don't want to, I, I think, expose your body to that sort of extreme heat all the time. Yep. And boulder through summer is, is hot anyway. But every now and again, I would, I would go out in the middle of the day and you just get used to it. You don't fear it anymore and you just, mm. it's what it is. And I certainly noticed going to Kona, everyone was always talking about the heat. People were checking the weather out 25 times a day. <laughs> and you know it's going to be hot and humid and probably windy to some degree. Mm. Um, in fact, I used to like when the wind blew there because that had a cooling effect, sort of that convective cooling effect. So, of but nobody likes that. Everyone likes fast times. Um, so nobody really likes the wind as much. I, I think it has its benefits. But, you know, it's like anything. You can see the positives, whatever the conditions or the scenario and mm. think it's important to, to hold on to them. Yeah, of course. Can I stay with heat for two seconds? Sure. Yeah, a bit of a struggle with heat personally, so I might just mine for some uh, some advice on your cooling strategies on the run. What, what were you doing? I used to stick my head in the ice buckets. I used to grab ice and hold it in my hand. I'd put ice in my crutch. Yeah. Um, I'd put it in my hat, um, any place where there were vessels close to the surface. Mm. Uh, and I'd douse myself with water so you did get that convective cooling. And, and the main thing, obviously, is hydration. I mean, hi- hydration is the most important thing in terms of minimizing your core body temperature increasing. I guess the problem with a long race in a hot climate is at some point it's a slippery slope and you're on diminished returns because you can't absorb as much as you're losing. So I guess the key point then is just to be, be as disciplined as you can with your hydration earlier in the race mm. and, and put off that point as far into the race as possible. Mm. Um, that was always my... I, I never went in believing that just being as hydrated as possible would stop my core body temperature going up. It's going to go up at some point. But yeah, I would pour water on myself, sponges, stick my head... They always had these huge buckets with ice. I just... If I felt I was overheating, I'd stick my head in Jump that for in. Yeah, five or six seconds. Yeah. Another thing I did was running along a Leahy Drive. There's a few beaches you run past. There's outdoor showers, and a few houses actually have outdoor showers. Yeah. So I made sure I knew where all of them were. Yeah. In case I needed needed to just grab. Perfect. A yeah. And um, just little things like that. But I would every aid station I would grab just everything that was on offer: a mouthful of water, a mouthful of whatever the electrolyte was, a mouthful of coal, another mouthful of water, then water over the top. Mm. And a race like that, the aid stations on the bike and run, they go for a, a couple of hundred meters, so you can keep going. Two and three times you can get through, absolutely. And made sure when I left the aid station, the last thing I'd do was grab two big chunks of ice and in my hand. I'd just stick something down my top. And mm. often they'd have the sponges that had been in the ice water, so they were freezing cold. So I'd stick one down my shorts and one in an armpit, 
and then run with the ice as well. Perfect. Yeah. Good. Big fan of the ice down the crush. Yeah. I've used that to some effect previously. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully they haven't hacked it with an ice pick because you can get some sharp bits down there that <laughs> are not super comfortable. <laughs> Whatever you got to do, I guess. That's huh? right. <laughs> I'm thinking about that sponge that goes back in the bucket. I wouldn't want to be... Uh... All the more, all the more incentive to be at the front of the Mason. You don't want recycled sponges, that's no, for sure. Not. I'll see no. what they do with those sponges. Yeah, I don't want. No. <laughs> There's enough description there. Well, you were talking about um, uh, sleep and anxiety and that sort of stuff pre-race. How, how did you personally sleep prior to those big races? I slept well. I slept well. I, I wasn't. I don't think I got more nervous than the average. I used to dream a lot the last week or 10 days. I would have really weird dreams. Like, you know that dream you have where you're running but you're not moving anywhere? I hate that dream. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all have that sort of dream. I used to have this dream that I'd be running along a lead drive and not move, not going anywhere. And I'd feel great, but I wouldn't go anywhere. And then I'd see turtles and stuff crawling past me. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> Bobby, Bobby Fickle. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bobby gives you the tap. Yeah, it's over. It's over. So, so I had that dream two or three times actually, but um, everybody's different. I think it helps to know yourself, and I felt that if I'm not a superstitious person, but one ritual I did have was reading my training diary the last week leading up to the race, and it was always good reading because I I just knew I'd trained well, and that. I, it never alleviated all the nerves, but I felt I've, I've done what I can. Um, you know, I've just got to make smart decisions on race day now and not get carried away these last few days. But I always felt that I think I was lucky in, in all the preparations that I, they've been quite good, with the exception of 2012 when I, where I hurt myself in the lead up mm. in the gym, hurt my back. And then that led to other things. But apart from that, I, I was really comfortable with all the the lead-ins and the racing all year um i was the kind of person who didn't use races as as lead-ups every race was important in its own right and for me it was important to win a lot of them that gave me confidence as well i mean i was lucky enough to be able to do that so yeah i just i just felt whilst you're nervous because there's a lot of expectation and pressure and um Whenever I'd get back to my hotel, I would, if I was really starting to feel anxious over over the top with nerves, I would I would just sit by myself and read the diary, and that would always make me feel much better mm. about where I was at. And that, you know, ultimately, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a winner on Saturday. There's going to be a few happy people, probably a lot of disappointed people, but I've I've done what I can to this point, and and that always. Yeah, alleviated a lot of the nerves and, and that external pressure that's always there. Mm. Um, I think the internal pressure, your own expectation, I mean, you just need to learn to deal with that. And I think that's a good thing to have. You know, obviously it means something to you and you expect a lot of yourself, and, mm. and I did. So mm. I never minded that element of it, but I think it's the external, the media, the sponsors. Um, 2012 was particularly hard because I just felt it became more about the promotion and everything else rather than performance performances Mm. and that can happen i think you know at some point in your career if you're lucky enough you have a great portfolio of sponsors and whilst they want you to win it's not their main goal Mm. selling stuff is their main goal of course and you know you might have enough on the resume that they feel they can leverage that and sell 
Um, and that can sometimes conflict with, as an athlete, your mindset, which is all about just preparing, training, recovery. You know, I guess the enemy of a, a nice routine and good consistent training is traveling around and being with people all the time and, and promotion. As much as I've come to learn to enjoy it, particularly in the latter end of my career, in a Kona lead up, it can just be distracting and annoying, mm. um, particularly after July. Uh, I always had the mindset, just just let me perform and then you'll have everything you need to sell whatever you need to sell. But I guess that's when they want you in the lead up to that. Absolutely. Race, so. And so that's where... And I will, I will say, for the most part, I've been very lucky. All the companies I've had and worked with let me prepare the way I wanted to mm. and, and backed me in to get a good result. And then would, and I said, you know, uh, after that, Saturday, the second Saturday in October, I'm yours. Mm. And, yeah, I'd often come back to Australia immediately after the race and then have to go back to the US or Europe for two or three weeks. And, and that was fine. It's fun. It's fun at that point. So, mm. um but yeah, there's a lot of things to juggle. You know, when, when you're coming up as an athlete, your primary concern is performance and the physical side of it. But there's so many other elements to it. If you're lucky enough to be successful with the business side and um, a whole lot of other things, which you don't really get training in. And you, it's kind of an on-the-job sort of learning, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so regarding that performance side, I, I've heard a couple of um, other triathletes say that during their full training, they basically sleep half their life away. So the recovery aspect is is huge. How much were you sleeping during a full training cycle? A lot, yeah. I mean, I my Kona build-ups were, were big weeks. And I would typically only do four or five-week blocks, and I'd only do two a year. Um, my normal training, I would say normal, the rest of the year, it was still... It was still big weeks and a lot of intensity but nothing like those push those push phases there were two two of those and I felt I had to do those because when I first stepped up to the Ironman distance I was 34 and I was racing guys Norman Farris Macca who'd been doing it for nearly 10 years so I felt I was giving them a big head start in terms of strength and endurance and also experience um so I felt I did have to overload quite a bit. Um, I'm not. I, I, I wouldn't say I had the mentality that more is better, but it's an endurance sport and how long's a piece of string? I mean, what's the right amount of training? I think so long as you're always reinforcing good technique and good habits, good functional movements, you can never train enough. Mm. The caveat there is don't get sick and don't get injured. Yeah. Don't get sick, don't get injured. But if you're always running, swimming and cycling with great efficiency and biomechanics if you're in the gym working on your strength and conditioning to promote great functional movement you can never train enough mm. again just don't get sick and don't get you can fuel that machine and, absolutely yeah. so in those push phases to answer your question how much was i sleeping i was mindful that i had to i was always very um diligent and vigilant with my recovery but in those periods i was more so than normal so i would be in bed early each night I would I'd want eight hours uninterrupted in the night Mm -hmm. usually be in bed for probably nine and I would always try and get 90 minutes in the afternoon as well Um, and I was lucky my wife was very supportive we had young children I would time my sleeps with the the kids afternoon naps or that she would take them out Mm -hmm. um, to the park or or whatever so Um, but I was having ice baths every day and I was around the time when the jury was out on ice baths. Mm. People were saying, well, what's the science saying? Is it 
is it a good thing or a bad thing? I just knew it made me felt amazing. Mm. I could do a, a 35K run in the morning, jump in the ice bath and hop out and feel like I hadn't run. Okay. And then my second run that day was amazing. Mm. Um, ice baths did something to my neurons. It just stimulated me. I felt great. I didn't have that really deep fatigue that you would get, particularly in the weight-bearing discipline of running. Mm. Um, so I, used to, I was having an ice bath every day. I was having supplementing all my meals with... I'd just have no, three normal meals, but I would have protein shakes between times, getting extra calories in, either berries, bananas, um, some sort of protein powder. So getting extra calories in and putting in what I thought were the good building blocks for recovery. Um, nutrition, I think I was, I was good. I would, I would eat... I don't believe in such a thing as a diet. I, I just think you got to eat sensibly. Mm. Like there was some carbs in there. There was a lot of lean meat, some protein. We would eat chicken, fish, um, red meat once or twice a week, um, sometimes pasta, a mix of everything and fats as well, good and bad. I used to treat myself a little bit. Good on you. Um, I, I believe you got a soft spot for chocolate. That's one of my soft spots, yeah. Um, in 2008, I got so skinny, about six or seven weeks before the race, I was actually having two beers every night with, with dinner. Great. I can relate, I can relate to yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even that skinny. I still do it. Yeah. Well, I, just, I remember just training. I mean, up at altitude, your body's on. That's one extra stress on your body anyway because obviously there's less oxygen in the air. And because your body's working harder, even just walking around, going to the supermarket, your heart rate's higher up at altitude. Mm-hmm. You burn more calories. And so I was very light, the lightest I'd ever been. And I felt great. I'm not the kind of athlete who jumped on the scales every day. For me, it was more about how I felt. I would prescribe the training and then I had to hit the parameters and feel good doing it. Mm-hmm. If I was feeling good, I didn't... You know, if things started going wrong, I, I might weigh myself. Or, but usually people couldn't wait to tell you how skinny you look or... <laughs> Um, especially up in Boulder. You look sick, Crowe. Yeah. No, good. You need a good feed, mate. <laughs> um, Boulder's kind of like the Sutherland Shore in that there's, you know, a lot of training groups and it's very similar. You go to the pool and Wolfgang Dietrich's running a squad, Simon Lessing's running a squad, Dave Scott's running a squad. All the pros and age groupers are in town there training away. Very similar to here. Yeah. At the pools, you know, we have master squads and different squads. Obviously, we have our track and, and cross-country. They have the similar over there. Um, and it's exactly the same on the bike. You go out riding and see a lot of your competitors up there training. So, yeah, I remember in 08, people saying you looked really light. And I did weigh myself. And I didn't really know what the benchmark was because, as I said, I wasn't not like I was keeping it in a logbook or anything. But I think I got down to 67 or 68 kilos. I thought, yeah, this is probably a bit like I've always been in the 70s. But I felt, I felt really strong. Um, but yeah, I started having a beer or two every night with dinner. And um, <laughs> do you reckon I was a bit of sledging? Just go, mate. You look a bit skinny yeah, for the race, Crowy. There could have been. <laughs> but the first person who said it to me though was Paula Newby Fraser, okay. who I wasn't racing. There you go. And um, I respected her a lot. It was in 2007, actually. We were flying from Boulder to Kona, and we were getting out there a month early, which is another thing everybody said was a no-no. I remember when. We actually tried to renew our lease for a couple of weeks to stay in Boulder for two more weeks before going to Kona, and we couldn't, we couldn't get the house. So I said to Neri, let's just pack up and go out to Kona for four weeks. And I remember Mark Allen saying, no, nah, too early. It's crazy. You'll, you'll cook yourself out there. And I guess the good thing is I listened to them all, so I was very mindful of it. I thought, okay, I've got to make sure I don't cook myself out there. Mm. 
because I'd already been training through the heat all summer anyway. Um, but when we were flying out there, our plane broke down and we ended up having to overnight in San Diego. Mm. And we had a lot of great friends in San Diego because I'd, I'd lived three or four summers out there. Anyway, our, our plane had to stop and it wasn't flying to Kona until the next day. So we went and caught up with McKeely Jones, who was living there, and we came straight from the airport. I remember I was with Neri and Lucy, our daughter, was only two years old. Well, not quite two. She, you know, she just turned two. And they had a ritual on Sunday nights. They'd all get together. Paula Newby Fraser and her husband, Paul Huddle, Heather Fuhr and her husband, Rock, McKeely. It was like a kind of like a Hall of Fame. I do so. Yeah. yeah. And um, we've turned up to, they, they used to go to this pizza joint. We've turned up to dinner and sat down and Paul has looked at me and straight away, before even saying hello or anything, said, geez, you're too skinny. You're too skinny. Too skinny for the race in Kona. <laughs> and um, I didn't think too much of it other than, I wouldn't say it didn't bother me, but I thought, well, I feel great in training. I feel yeah. amazing actually. And, this is the only body I've got. It's not like there's another version I've got in the suitcase, which is five kilos heavier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is all I've got, and there's nothing I can do about it now. But it made me more mindful of, okay, well, I've still got four weeks until the race. So just make sure you eat well and sleep well. And um, you ended up getting second in that race. But I think it's funny when you hear people you look up to, when you get feedback from them, and it all relates to your point about sledging. Some people do sledge. A lot of people don't they have your best interests at heart and when when their feedback's negative, that's the stuff you kind of listen to because you think, well, I have no real agenda here other than they're trying to help me. That's right. Um, But I remember in 07 going to that first race so conservatively because of Paula and Welsh and a few other people had said to me a few things and I thought, oh, okay, I've got to be super careful here. I've got to be more than conservative. And I think that's part of you hear the experience people talk about. I think part of the experience of racing in Ironman is there is certainly a mental hardening that takes place, mm. but also just experience. You learn where the edge is at. Yeah. You can't know that until you push right up against it a few times. And the first couple of times I didn't, I stayed well away and in control because I just had everybody's words ringing in my ear about... Just hold back, hold yeah, back. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, there's no shortage of people willing to offer you advice. Mm. I guess it's what you choose to listen to. I used to listen to a lot of it, particularly if it was from people I respected and I knew they only had my best interests at heart. It didn't mean it hurt any less if it wasn't the kind of feedback you wanted to get. But again, it's all information that you can use. So, If, if, if someone calls me skinny, I don't call it sledging. I call it foreplay. Yeah, <laughs> it's a compliment, isn't it? Yeah, it's a compliment. All right, should we lighten the, the, the mood a little bit? Uh, we've got a listener question, but the oh. name's withheld. Okay. So uh, this person said, uh, share with the listeners a story getting a, a carried home from your bucks. Well, I don't know if I was carried home, but I'd had a few drinks. I mean, it wasn't my bucks. But I'd raced the day before in Canberra. Remember we used to have the Formula One series that then became the Accenture series? Well, it was an Accenture series race we had in Canberra. And so there's a couple of the, the guys who were racing who were coming on the bucks. So we started drinking in Canberra on the drive home. And we got back to the Sutherland Shire and we got changed. We went out in safari suits. <laughs> we're, we're hitting up. We're going to the eastern suburbs and then the city. And um, I actually remember it was... I was about to walk out of where we were living at the time in our apartment and the phone rang. 
and I thought it was my brother because we were organising to meet. I was organising to meet my brother in town, and it was actually Asada. It was the drug testers, <laughs> and um, they were back in the days before you had an app on your phone and you had to log your whereabouts. What used to happen was they would ring you and say, "You have a drug test. You have to be at Sutherland Leisure Centre tomorrow at eight o'clock in the morning." Oh wow! So I've answered the phone, and it was the drug test guy, and I'm like, oh. "I'm like, mate, you're not going to believe it. I'm, you've probably heard." Every story now, but I'm actually on my way out to my Bucks night. He said, you've been notified. You have to be there. If you're not there, it's a missed test. So anyway, we went out. Um, it was a great night, actually. We got kicked out of the Watson's Bay Hotel. Then we got kicked out of the Clavelli Hotel. We ended up at the Coogee Bay Hotel, and we got kicked out of there. Travel, it's on the Lightweights. We're all lightweights. <laughs> Although we did have one of my groomsmen... Actually, was an ex-NRL player, so he could drink, and so could a few of the other boys. So I think they more than made up for the lightweight triathletes because, <laughs> yeah, we were. The great thing about being a lightweight is, though, you get drunk. It's so cheap. And, and then you sober up two hours <laughs> later, and you can, you can do it again. You can get drunk three times in the one night. <laughs> Go do your drug test yeah, and then get back yeah. on it. <laughs> so I don't, had six beers. I don't remember getting carried home, but I remember there was a few of us getting a cab home, and they wanted me to do a nude run through the airport tunnel. like... <laughs> They're like, that's a tradition. I'm like, what tradition? I've never even heard of it happening it's before. you got to start somewhere, <laughs> yeah, don't you? Yeah, it was, it was meant to be the start of the tradition, but I didn't do it. But um, I got home at 7 in the morning, and uh, one of my um, – you know when you're on your bucks, they give you a list of tasks you have to accomplish? Yeah, yeah, I don't know if this is going to put the, the listeners off, but I had to collect women's underwear from people who are at the bar or yeah. at the, the pubs and – I had to get 10 pairs. That definitely won't put the listeners off. Okay. No. Well, I'm ashamed to say I did get the 10 pairs. <laughs> and the boys made me wear them all up over the top of my safari suit. So who was the last one to get over the top of the other nine pairs? I remember it was a G-string, actually. But it fitted nicely over the top. And I've walked home. And my wife knew I had to... Uh, well, it was my soon-to-be wife. She knew I had a drug test because she was driving me up. So I've knocked on the door. She's answered the door, seen the... Um, You're still wearing I'm still wearing them. Yeah. <laughs> she came back with a set of stainless steel tongs. I had to take them off. She carried them out to the bin with the tongs, and then we got in the car and went up and did the drug test. Um, I was hoping you'd turn up to start it with the outfit on. But I did. I had the safari suit on. Yeah. <laughs> I wore the safari suit up there, but I, I, she made me get rid of the undies. The girls' undies are right over the top. That's disappointing. Yeah. Imagine what kind of drugs have you been on? Yeah. <laughs> That's unreal. How often did you get drug tested along the way? Mate, later on, many times. I mean, I remember, I want to say it was 04. Was it 04? It might have been 05. I did, I did the Australian Sprint Champs, which I think were at Coffs Harbour that year on a very hilly course and I won the race and they used to just standard drug test the top three male and female and then one other in the top ten so I got drug tested um, straight after the race and then we drove home that night back to Sydney and I got called up for an outer competition on the Monday so I did one the next day and then I got another outer competition they showed up at our house on the Thursday wow and then the following weekend, I raced the Aussie Long Course Champs, which I won and got tested again. So I had four tests in eight days. Wow. That was my record. Um, but on average, you know, through, I guess, the 2000s and then the Kona winning years, yeah, I was, it was quite regular. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to put a time frame on it because sometimes you would get 
tested four times in a month and then you might not get tested for two months or three months and then get tested again. Um, I guess that was the whole nature of it. They didn't want any sort of pattern to develop no, where you no. could, they thought people could mm. work out when they were coming. Um, sometimes you would, you would get tested two or three times in quick succession and then maybe not for two or three months. So, okay. but it was, it was regular. It was regular. I remember each year in Kona, I would always like clockwork get tested the last week I was in Colorado and then I would get tested again in Kona. And then obviously if you'd have a good race, you get tested on race day. Mm. So usually I'd be tested three times, two or three times in the lead up to Hawaii as well. Um, okay. Yeah. Was that consistent across your contemporaries, like your competitors? I don't know. I don't know. I, I do know that um, the drug testers, when they show up at your house, they're not meant to talk about who else mm-hmm. uh, they're testing. or. But I used to get a sense, and I used to tease this one guy. So in Boulder, they were based in Colorado Springs, which is two hours' drive away, mm-hmm. where the um, U.S. training center was. So the, the drug testers would all drive up, and I guess if they're driving up to Boulder, it's a two-hour drive, they'd try and test all the Boulder athletes. Yeah. So you'd know... I'd know that they'd just been to Rennie's house and everybody, you know, everyone who's in town and I'd always tease the guy and say, oh, have you been to Greg Bennett's house or are you on your way there now? And he's like, you, you know I can't talk about that. <laughs> Offer directions. <laughs> directions. Yeah. Was it the same bloke, like, coming and testing you each time? For a long time it was. I remember around here, um, the chaperone, was he was an ex-NRL player. He played in a lot of the St. George's Premiership winning teams, whatever that was, the 50s or 60s, Brian, yeah. So I struck up a bit of friendship, bit of a friendship with Brian because he would come to our house, I'd have to go to his house and um, he was a nice guy. He used to tell me how it all worked and they would get notified by either Triathlon Australia or whoever else Mm -hmm. and um, WTC or any of the governing bodies who could um, order the tests and, and in Colorado Springs for a long time it was the same guy as well. Okay. Um, what was the turnaround time from when you did the test to, to get your result? I want to say six weeks or yeah. thereabouts, maybe more. I, I can't remember. I never really paid attention to it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But what I would always, like when you fill out the paperwork immediately after the test, you got your copy to keep. I'd always hold on to it because they said you should hold on to it until the results come. But you'd always get notified by email or by letter. Um, but, you know, as an athlete, I wouldn't say you've got a short attention span, but you're focusing on so much, mainly performance data points and races, and, you know, it's always about the next race and then the next thing. And once you've done a drug test, that's not even on your radar anymore. But, yeah, I remember the notifications would show up. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they would, but... It's yeah. funny that you've got the same person, I reckon, over and over again. Because they've basically got to follow you into the bathroom and, and watch mm. you taking a piss oh absolutely so, so it's a fairly intimate relationship you're Very developing intimate. with Brian you know like, so <laughs> yeah probably tell if you're a bit sick that day or something yeah, like, yeah. too skinny or, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes you'd have to throw out a line like well mate I've just been for a long run I'm a little dehydrated that's <laughs> trying to explain it's cold cold outside (laughs) exactly don't judge me try some new nicks out the the guy in the US who used to come and (laughs) test me was this really big guy and I used to think he's he's so unimpressed when I I drop my strides because yeah you have to you have to have your pants below below your knees and pull your shirt up above your belly button and then they have to get down (laughs) eye level so to speak basically and um, you're kind of like yeah it's a bit cold outside Um, (laughs) man I don't know what else do you say yeah yeah Keep your thoughts to yourself. Oh, that's 
So, um, in 2014, roughly five years ago, you retired from your Ironman distance. Was that strategic to maintain your, your longevity? Um, not really. It was because I felt my head and heart wasn't in it anymore. Um, that being said, I think you make a good point because I think it has helped me still. I mean, I, I turned 46 a month ago or a few weeks, three weeks ago now. So, yeah, I, I, there's no question. I think not having to log those long miles, particularly in the run, has helped. Um, helped me be able to maintain a high level in the sport. But at the time, it's just, and even that year, with my personality, I, I can't do things by chance. It has to be planned and then planned again and then planned and more scheduling. And 2013, I thought, was my last uh, time in Kona because our second child was starting school the following year, so we thought. And we already had one at school and we were homeschooling and it was just getting harder. It was just getting harder. Plus, we'd been living away from home for five or six months of the year for nearly 20 years by that point. And it, I'm not going to sit here and say it's not amazing. It's a wonderful lifestyle. Mm. But at some point, it's got to end. I know my wife was dying to get back to work. Um, you know, everything has its shelf life. Do you, do you still go and, and, and relocate over in Colorado or...? We were there this year. Yeah. And how long do you go over? For eight for? days this year. Only eight days. So we, we were in the US for three weeks. The main reason we went back was for a wedding. Yeah. Um, but obviously I let the sponsors know I was going, so they scheduled a few appearances while I was over there. And I said in area, it's a long way to go just for a wedding. So we made it a three-week trip, yep. and we ended up having 10 days in Boulder or nine days. And of the nine days we were there, I was away two or three of them. I had other trips to do to Dallas and other places, so... Just promo trips, so, but that was the first time they're in. The kids have been back with me for probably three or four years, I think. Yeah, because it'd be hard for them to to relocate. Yeah, so, um, especially our oldest, she's in year nine now. That's sort of a step up from primary school, where you can take the kids out of school. And as long as you're homeschool, you can manage things. Uh, you know, we were always mindful of her education, but. We seemed to have a good handle on things and she would get a tutor while we were over there and the curriculum would be sent over or we'd, we'd take it with us. And um, But yeah, in 2013, I just thought, you know, I was getting to the point where Lucy was doing weekend support and our son was starting to do stuff and I just didn't want to miss their stuff anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, as you guys know, there's a, there's a sacrifice that has to be, to be made with everything you do and... With Ironman racing, a lot of that sacrifice is time, time away from the things you would otherwise be doing or family. And, you know, I was very happy having won, won the title three times and having a second and a fourth as well. I thought, you know, I've got a great record here. I, I don't really have to prove anything. And I never felt that I had to prove anything, to be honest, but it's about wanting to be there as well. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, commercially, what would one extra win do? I mean, one extra win would be amazing but three or four titles. I, I don't know if it makes you more marketable or maybe it does. I don't know. I just thought, but these are all the questions you ask yourself. And I, it came down to what do I really want to be doing? Um, and so we decided the 13 would be the last one. And then of course we get to February and we decided not to start Austin in school. Uh, my wife, Neri and his teachers thought maybe he needs to wait another year. He was only four and a half. So, and the week before that happened, I just won the Aussie 
70.3 champs down in Geelong. Geelong 70.3. I beat a pretty good, pretty hot field down there. Brad Carlfeld was down there and Tim Marie, Tim Burkle, um, a lot of really good guys. And I won the race and thought, well, I'm in good form. And now Austin's not starting school. Melbourne's on in four weeks. So I, I jumped into it at, um, and had a pretty good race. So I finished fifth. Um, didn't have a great swim, but my bike and run that day was really good. Um, I averaged, I want to say about 287 or 290 watts, which for me was was very good uh, over the Ironman distance and ran, I think, a 240, I think I ran a 241 um, that wow. day. Um, so I biked solo. I missed the front group. So I did the whole ride solo and then ran a 241 or 242, I want to say. I can't remember exactly what the time, the split was, I'm sure. Someone listening could Google it and they can look it up. But it was a low 240. And I thought, you know, that was... Because normally I would have trained for an early season Ironman all through December, January. And I didn't that year. Um, I was obviously doing some shorter, harder work, which uh, was why I was able to win a 70.3 in early February. But only having a four-week... I did four long runs and four long rides, basically, leading into... and. I mean, I had a great base, had great aerobic conditioning after 20 years for sure. But even at that point, I wasn't sure I was going to do Kona in 2014. I was very happy with Melbourne. I thought I got through that fairly unscathed and felt great afterwards. But because I had announced that Kona the year before was going to be my last one, my sponsors had organized a very busy year in terms of promotions. And I couldn't really go back on that. So I had a lot of traveling to do through May and June. And normally I would get up to Boulder May. Um, I didn't get up there. Well, we got up there in the end of June, but then I had to go to Europe for three weeks for a promo trip. And so it's kind of like training was the afterthought. Um, and when you're racing in Kona, for me, it had never been that way. That was always the priority. Yeah. The, the priority for the year and the day-to-day priority. Um, but I'm still glad I decided to do it because I knew that would definitely be my last one. I think I finished thirteenth or fourteenth there. Had a cup, had a mechanical. The last two years I raced Kona, I got mechanicals. Um, but I won't complain because I had five years before that pretty clean sailing, no mechanicals, no bad luck or. Um, but yeah, so thirteen, and then and then I, I snuck fourteen in, and I knew that would be the last one. And yeah, so it's been five years, and I, I've got to say that I don't really look back and regret. Um, could have I squeezed a couple more out? I could have, I think, physically, no doubt. Um, but it's not only that. You've got to want to do the training. You've got to be happy with the sacrifices that your family are making as well as yourself. Um, the sponsors would have loved it, no doubt. Uh, and, and the first two years standing on the pier when the gun went off when I was a spectator, I felt like I, I probably should have been in the water. But you've got to feel like that 365 days of the year, not just the race day. Yeah, race right. day FOMO. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. It gets yeah. everyone. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and it was something I'd never experienced, you know, that sort of, no one say it was anxiety or, but it was a strange feeling. I'm like, I'm physically still feeling good enough to be in there. Should I still be in there or, but it quickly passed. I, I want to say the day after the race, I thought, you know what? No, I've, I've made the right decision. I've, there's other things I'm doing. I'm more engaged with the family and the kids and I wouldn't have traded that. Um, and yeah, I, I had a good run there. I think everything has its shelf life, as I said, and I just, I felt really, 
and for me, the, I guess the real shift was in 2013. Now that I look back, you know, they say hindsight's a wonderful thing. There is nothing that would have got in the way of my training, nothing, in my serious Coney years. But in 2013, when we arrived over there, and our third child had just been born, Lani. And as with all of the kids, once we got the all clear from the doctors for them to travel, their ears were strong enough to, to travel, we travelled. Um, I think Lani was six or seven weeks old. Uh, I want to say we stopped in and did the 70.3 race in Kona on the way over. From memory, I think we did do that. And we didn't get to... So we didn't get to Boulder until later that year because um, Lani was born in at the end of March and we... She was seven, eight weeks old when we travelled, so it was two months later. So it was late May, early June we got there. Um, and Neri got sick, really sick. And she ended up in hospital for two and a half weeks. She was in intensive care for 10 days. Wow. So here am I with three kids, one of which is eight weeks old. And, you know, we're away from home, no family really. We had a lot of great friends there and they were helping a lot. They were helping a lot. But... You know, in the middle of the night, Lani's crying because she'd been breastfed and I had to get her onto formula. And, you know, I want to say Neri's family were amazing, though. Her sister and her mum would ring every day. Obviously, they were very concerned about Neri, particularly when she was in ICU. But they were also were like, aren't you meant to be training for Hawaii now? We can come over. And I look back now and think, in the past, I would have said, yeah, can you please come over? And I knew Neri's younger sister, Jules, was coming over anyway. And she would always come over and help us out. So it wouldn't have been a stretch. And, and I know at the drop of a hat, she would have come over. If I said, Jules, can you bring your trip forward two or three or four weeks? She would have done it for us because she would always come and help us. Um, but I kind of felt, you know, these are my kids. At some point, I need to step up and look after them. I just can't keep... Prioritizing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing as an athlete, you know, I get I think you get to a point in your life where I don't want to say I'm a selfish person, but I think as an athlete, there's a lot of am I training the right way? What's my recovery like? How many hours am I sleeping a night? What's my diet like? Do I need to rejig my strength and condition? There's a lot of me and I and a lot of self analysis and self focus. Which is kind of the opposite what that what happens when you become a parent, isn't it? I mean you you take a back seat to the kids. Yeah. And that was the first time, you know, our third child had come along and I thought, I really need to step up a bit here, I think. I mean, and at the time I, I thought I could, you know, it's still two, two more, was it three months to Kona, I'll be okay. And um, I'm getting older now, I don't need to train as much or as hard. But it was more the mindset shift than the physical it was other things were starting to take priority over Kona and my career. And, and that's the way it should be. I think you get to a point where I want to say that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Ready. Ready to go. So um, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned uh, Greg Welsh and you mentioned McKeeley Jones. So they were both sort of mentors for you. What stands out to you, some advice that they've passed on that you've sort of hung on to? Um. McKeeley used to say to me, I'll tell you what I did, but you need to work out what's going to work for you. And that was one thing that I always understood that there was sort of an, an individualized nature to everything, whether it be the training. Some people respond more to volume. Some respond, respond better to intensity. Nutrition, everyone's metabolism is different. The way they sweat, the way they absorb calories. Um, and there's a trained effect for sure. You get more efficient. 
but there's an individualized nature to it all. Um, what's some advice that Greg gave me? He gave me so much great advice. I, I, nothing comes to mind right now. <laughs> Sorry, Walshie. Um, now, I was doing a talk the other day and, and something Greg had said to me had come to mind. It'll come to me. Let's come back to it. Can, can I just talk a couple of numbers? You were talking about your, your ride being sort of 290, 294 watts sort of stuff. Yeah. Are you one of these blokes that lives and dies by these numbers or are you more a perception of effort feel sort of a bloke? I was always an RPE. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I started doing triathlons, I was two years into a physio degree. So um, I had a bit of a background in anatomy and physiology um, and being a poor uni student I never really could afford a, a heart rate monitor so but I learned I mean you, I knew the theory and then in training you learn about uh, perceived exertion what it should feel like to be at or close to threshold what it feels like to go over threshold mm. um, so I always did it that way I didn't get a pound meter on my bike until 2007 the first year I did Kona and I, it was helpful I think it was for one thing, I used to like just looking at the... Little distractions yeah, and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. And see how the numbers, you're going up a yeah. hill, down a hill, how cadence changes yeah. it. I used to conduct these Zone little... out for a little while. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was kind of yeah. like a little mental distraction. And, but also, um, yeah, just little experiments, how cadence would affect um, power output, how riding up or downhill, um, where, where could I get free speed, where did I have to put in the effort to get the speed... So I think the power meter on the bike helped me with that. But in terms of, I mean, I always got a sense of what it would should would or should feel like. Mm-hmm. You know, I never would run out on the marathon and look at my pace. I would work out how I felt. Yeah. You know, when you get off the bike, you know, you've just swum and biked. So you've been non-weight bearing all day. Plus now you're a little dehydrated. So you hop off the bike for the first time throughout the race. You're now weight bearing. You're upright. So your heart rate spikes a little bit, but your blood pressure drops, so you get that terrible feeling. Mm. Um, so I think the first three to four minutes of running always feels uncomfortable because of that. Mm. Um, Shunting the You've got to blood. shunt the blood from the quads mainly to the more the running muscles, the calves more, and the glutes, the hammies. Mm. But once I would get through that first three or four minutes, I would just think, okay, how does this feel? Can I hold this this effort for two hours? Yeah. So I would, I would and the same on the bike. I would think for the marathon, I've just got to hold this effort level for two hours and then just suck it up for 30 minutes at the end or 40 minutes, whatever it be. Just 40 minutes. <laughs> Toughen up. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, doing track sessions in the early days like that, if we would do eight 1Kers or five by five minutes, I mean, you learn. If, if I used to run with a really good squad, um, trained with some great triathletes. I was very lucky. Simon Whitfield, Greg Bennett, and we used to work with this run coach and, if he'd give us five by five minutes or eight by three minutes, or often we'd just be down at Balmoral Oval and it was just around sort of two, it was around witches hats really, it wasn't even a marked out track, but he'd say, we're going to do three lappers, which would be about four minutes worth, we're going to do six of them. I got the sense that, you know, when you were doing that kind of work, you'd do 20 to 30 minutes worth of work. Mm. So if you were doing six by four minutes, you had to, you know, the goal was, I mean, if you did the session properly, there'd be a bit of a drop off, but you wouldn't fall off the cliff with two or three reps to go. So you learnt that element of, okay, I need to be mindful of the pace here that I set in the first two reps. Mm. And also you quickly figure out, too, your body warms up. Often your second and third rep are better than your first one. Mm. 
So I think one of the great things about not being a slave to those numbers is you learn to listen to your body's cues and you learn how it works. Mm. I mean, even still to this day, if I'm doing sort of five, five-minute efforts on the bike, usually numbers two, three, and four are the, are the good ones. Yep. One's up there, two gets up there, three and four, and then you drop off a bit as you start to fatigue. And um, Yeah, so I learned to do it. I've never worn a really a heart rate. I did, I did get a heart rate monitor twice in my career once in 2002. I was on the squad for the Commonwealth Games in Manchester. I was on a squad of, I think there were six or seven of us, and then they were going to pick a team of three, and I got the chicken pox. So I didn't make it to the first selection race, but going through the rehab, the sports doctor I was working with said, because I was always saying, when can I get back to training? He said, you need to monitor your resting heart rate. To, to moderate how you were feeling. Yeah. yeah. So I went on, I started sleeping with the, the heart rate monitor, and... And it was, it was clear as day. I mean, I was surprised when I was, my body was fighting the virus. I'd wake up, my heart rate would be 70 or 80. Mm. And then one day it just dropped down under 30, just overnight. It was, the alarm on the thing went off and it, was, it had gone like literally 40 or 50 beats it had dropped. And from the sports the... doctor's knocking on the door going, mate, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, well, it's <laughs> harder. Yeah, that's right. So, and then the other time I got a heart rate monitor was in 2008, so I'd been going up to altitude for three years by then, but I started, you know, your body adapts to the stimulus. And after a while of training at Boulder, which is five and a half thousand feet, about 1,800 meters, I was training at it around 1,800 or 2,000 meters. In 2008, I wanted to up the ante and go a bit higher. So I got a heart rate monitor to see what, what was happening up at nine and 10,000 feet mm. when I was riding and running up there, just to make sure I didn't overdo it. Um, but no, to answer your question again and not wanting to digress here, yeah, no, I was never a slave to the numbers. That being said, I think all information is good. I just think we need to be careful now that when we see a number, we know what it actually represents and how do we use it to actually get quicker because that's the goal. Of course. The goal is not to upload so much information into Training Peaks or whatever training platform you use. I mean, it's, it's about meaningful data and what it actually represents. performance. Yeah, and how do you use that to change moving forward, either the training, whether you need recovery, do we need to up the ante, up the overload, whatever. So hmm. I think there are a lot of great, you know, and we live in the age now, and it was, it was only a matter of time with all the technologies infiltrating life, it was going to infiltrate sport as well, hmm. different wearable technologies. We now have bike power meters. Well, we've had those for over a decade now. We're now seeing run power meters. We've got heart rate monitors. There's different stress scores. I mean, what does it all mean? Mm. Um, I think we can overcomplicate things. So, and that's where I think experience is is, is helpful because I, I wouldn't say I'm old school or all about the theory. I think you need a mixture of everything. Mm. The best people I've come across in my 20 odd years in the sport are the people who understand the science behind what's happening, mm. but also have seen a lot of the trends come and go and have seen the patterns when you coach an athlete and what happens. Yeah. Um, and also understanding the individualized nature that, you know, we're not all created equal. Um, physically, mentally, emotionally, and all those things impact performance. Um, nutritionally, all of, all of those things. Mm. You know, someone can have a stressful week at work and that impacts their training. Yeah. Their home life can be stressful. Um, so all those things. So I guess it's just a matter of deciphering out of all those gadgets and all that technology, what is useful in monitoring and I still think that the gold standard is heart rate for mine. Um, do you use heart rate if you're feeling unwell, if you've got a cold or you're feeling sick or something? Do you use heart rate as a guide whether or not you should be out training? I should use it, but I don't know. I just, 
I never take days off, really. But I've got to learn the difference between a viral sickness and just sort of more of a chest infection. And for me, if it's viral, I rest. Um, I know if I'm not feeling right, I just rest. And I think you have to because it can be dangerous to train through viruses. Mm. If it's more like a chest infection, I like to do very, very low-intensity training because I think that promotes, without getting the heart rate up, just oxygen around the body. Um, promotes healing. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. So, and in a controlled environment, so my go-to is just hopping on the bike trainer with no resistance and just pedaling the legs, mm. watching the TV, and, but get the body moving. And I think if you've got a chest infection, when it starts resolving as well, getting that air in can help clear the lungs out. Um, I like that. I'm going to tell my wife. When she, has, when she has a whinge next time that I want to go out training when I've got a chest infection. <laughs> it's perfect. You're Crowley be, said yes. The, okay. the key with all of this and the caveat is you've got to be self-aware. Some people cannot control themselves and be disciplined. I probably fall into that category. There's been times when I've trained and I probably shouldn't have. But no, I haven't used the heart rate. I, just, I try to do what I feel. I think we all know the difference where we should if you've trained enough. And, and that's where, you know, with this coaching business... I've now got, you kind of, if you do a good enough job and people, people are not really wanting to win world titles, they just want to either lose weight or get fit or do a couple of five or 10K fun runs. If you do your job, you should be redundant after a little while because you just empower them with the knowledge to make the decisions. They know their body, they know how they're feeling. I don't. Mm. Hopefully you give them the information, they can make smart decisions and um, it, it doesn't hurt to have a sounding board, someone who's very experienced for sure. Um, but no, I don't use a heart rate. I probably should. I think it's it's still the gold standard. How your heart is performing under any set of circumstances is is indicative of a lot of things, isn't it? So it takes in all those variables that you talk about. So and gives yeah. you one number yeah. to make a decision. So so while we're speaking of coaching, Brett, you're doing some coaching now. Last time I saw you in real estate, did you burn out like I did? Uh, I was, Matty, uh, in real estate for a little while. I lasted almost 12 months. How did, how did you go? <laughs> Good question. I, I did last a day. A day? Yeah. But like, like a, I a said, full day? Or consci- or? It was a full, well, it must have been six to eight hours. But just conscious of burnout, you know? <laughs> you don't want to go peak too hard, you know, too early kind of thing. And Correct. One day at a time. What was your heart rate like on the... First day. Well, like Crowley, I wasn't watching it carefully. <laughs> Sounds like it was skyrocketing. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see that you listen to your body, though, and we're able to pull stunts when needed right. to. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So all the cues were there, and I uh, gave myself an early mark and ticked that box, you know. But it's nice to reflect on my real estate career. It's a beauty. I do it. Comes up once a podcast. Yeah, right. it does get a mention quite regularly. Yeah, so, it's good how you can fit real estate and triathlon training into the, the one podcast and kind of right. mould it in without actually having that transition phase. No one's picked it up. It's been good. That's all right. Great yeah. segue. So tell us about uh, your coaching. What are you What are you doing? Uh, well, I've been coaching with uh, with Craig and uh, Sanzago for a while now. It's um, I couldn't actually tell you how many years. It's been, been a long time. I think at least. Five, six, seven years we've been kind of coaching under the Sensego banner. It's been good. Yep. Got a, a wide range of athletes, so a lot of it is probably more um, over the computer and internet and, and Skype calls. So we have athletes in you know, Canada and Japan I've dealt with and in the US, and uh, obviously we've got a couple of guys here locally that we, we look after as well. Me personally, we've got coaches that are based in Europe and the US and, and New Zealand, so it's, we kind of have a, a nice big reach mm. uh, no matter where we are. 
Is it, is, it a, is it a top-end sort of training program or is it sort of wide-ranging? Wide yeah, wide-ranging. Yeah, we, we cater for a lot of guys like Craig mentioned a little bit earlier. We've got some really good age group athletes that are uh, usually on the podium or going for Kona slots and, and things like that. And, and then we've got um, some of the, the other athletes that are just happy to compete um, yeah. and want to just do a PB or kind of improve on the swim or the bike or um, you know the nutrition or kind of have a, a little bit of a different aspect to their, their training. So it's good from a coach's point of view because yeah. you get to still be involved in the high-level athletes that are really after it to kill and then some of the ones that just like love being a part of the sport and being out there. Plenty of variety there. Yeah. So you're doing that, the coaching, which I'm sh- sure would take up a lot of your time, and then you're also doing CODA as well? We are. Yeah. So um, we've been in, kind of involved in CODA for... Uh, probably since October last year, actually, it's um, we kind of did a bit of a, a soft launch uh, at Kona. It's always a good reason to get a, a holiday or a business trip to, <laughs> to Kona. Nice. Uh, since Craig isn't racing anymore, we've got to come up with new inventive ways to try and cross the, the ditch to, to Kona. So we did a bit of a soft launch there, but you know, Coda has been around for a long time, just under a different brand name. So um, Coda has been kind of been sold under the Shots Nutrition. Uh, oh, really? Darryl. Yeah. Ah, so great it's, product. It's been around for a long time. It's it's tried, it's tested. There's been a lot of uh, amazing athletes in triathlon, cycling, you know, running, uh, even motorsports. A lot of the guys are actually into that in the, the yeah. cars or the bikes. And uh, so the product's been around for a long time, mm. uh, which is great. Uh, we've just kind of rebranding it into Coda, mm. uh, being that we want to take it into the US, into Europe. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately for us, Shots has already been trademarked over there. So oh, right. we can't sell it under Shots. Uh, so we've had to come up with a new name, a new branding. Mm. Um, and then go to market uh, under that and kind of have that transitional phase um, happening at the moment. So once those shots uh, kind of run out of stock, yeah. we're kind of replacing it with the, the coder uh, as it comes available. That was a game changer for me, the shots, tablets. Yeah. yeah. Sensational product. The yeah. Yeah. tablets, yeah. yeah. Really yeah. high in sodium, um, yeah. no yeah. sugar in there as well. And being that it is a tablet that's scored, it gives you the ability to be able to, to break it in half yeah. or put two in or three in or one, um, just depending on where you're racing or where you're training and, and what the event is as well. Easy to get into the soft flasks. Yeah. Those ones. Yeah. Yeah, great. I feel like they were replacing exactly what you were sweating out to me. It's got 430 milligrams of sodium in a tab, yep. um, which is probably the highest on the market okay. um, out there. And um, I think Craig mentioned a couple of times with his sweating and nutrition talking to you guys is that once you know what your numbers are, it gives you the ability then to be able to you know, change those tabs up depending mm. on what your sodium and, and how much you sweat too. So your sweat and volume, which is always important. So we still got the same product as far as the tabs. Mm. So that they haven't changed. The, the gels are still exactly the same as well, which yeah. is great. Um, but Daryl Griffith, who's kind of been the, the brains of the operation for so long, and yeah. he's the one that's come up with the products. Mm. Um, he's actually just released one of our new bars um, probably a couple of weeks ago. So the, the old shots bars that we had have been replaced with the Coda, uh, which are kind of dairy-free, gluten-free, uh, no refined sugars read in there as well. It's vegan. Um, so it's really just all natural bar that you get to take out and, and kind of train and race with too. So he's done a lot of testing over the last few years to get that bar mm. ready. So you guys have got some bars here to, to try. Oh, cool, cool. Um, probably wouldn't take them with your beer, but maybe <laughs> later on this afternoon when you're looking for a snack, um, you can grab one and, and see how it goes. Might, might save it for the run. Yeah. Saturday yeah. run. Yeah. <laughs> the weekend. Well, I, I read Daryl Griffith's uh, little book. It was Eat, Sweat, Think, or something. Go like Faster. That. Go Faster. Yeah, yeah. great so, read. He's a really good The guy, I mean, Craig and I know a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we know enough to, to hold a conversation, I suppose. And yeah. uh, But Daz is, uh, I think, what he's forgotten about 
sports nutrition, hydration is um, probably more than we'll retain. Yeah. Um, and he's worked with a lot of high-level athletes, not just in triathlon, but a lot of the pro tour teams he's worked with. Mm. I mean, you're looking at the V8 supercars. Um, he's worked with a lot of those drivers, yeah. uh, the GP guys, CrossFit. I mean, you name a sport, he's, he's had his finger in, in that pie. He's been in the trail running. Guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Penny Alston down Find Your Feet. Yeah, Find Your Feet down in Tassie. Yeah, uh, done a lot of work with those guys. We were actually at the, the UTA this year as well under yeah, Coda. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we actually supplied all their nutrition uh, for on course as well for those guys, which was good. So he's, like I said, he's kind of, you mentioned a sport, he's, he's got someone he's worked with yeah. uh, in that sport, which has been great. Very good. And anything else you, you're doing besides those two things? Um, that kind of takes up a lot of your time. I imagine it yeah. would. Like you said, it's um, the, the training. Uh, running programs is uh, probably a lot more labour intensive than I think people can understand. I mean, Craig writing his own, I'm sure it's a little bit harder to sit down and, and see how you're feeling, but when you're writing for people over the world and having meetings and then, mm. you know, kind of launching Coda and, and getting out there and, and spreading the word is good. And mm. obviously you've got your own training as well, so you've got to make sure you find time to yeah. at least hit the bike when you can. And, and you're training triathlon stuff? Like uh, not anymore. I've had a few injuries, so at the mm. moment I'm just kind of riding the bike. Okay. Uh, something Just enough to keep saying. Yeah, which, which is good. Are you local as well? You're in. I am. Um, yeah, just down the road. Okay. So yeah, now been around for a while. I was going to ask about that cycling stuff around Southern Shire. Obviously, the Shire has bred a whole bunch of great triathletes and cyclists as well. Do you think there's a there's an issue with the amount of I don't know traffic across cities in general? Do you think you'll see less and less of those good cyclists come out of suburbia? Yeah, it's funny, Craig and I went for a ride this morning, and I think from the first twenty minutes of, of riding. Yeah. Uh, we had a couple of close encounters and mm, yeah. you know, it's school holidays at the moment here in Sydney yeah. um, but I think there felt like more traffic on the road today than there was during peak hour of a, of a normal school week so yeah, yeah. it's getting harder and harder and you're kind of still trying to ride the old routes that you have for the last 30 odd years but um, it's getting harder to keep those those tracks up so you've got to try and find new ways to, to get around and mm. a lot of um, inside training as well at the moment too with some of the new software they have out you kind of use that the, the Swift stuff and Zwifting yeah. there's a lot of Swifting I'm not sure whether that's because people like exercising or they get addicted to arcade games yeah you're right um, so you've got the, the arcade game as you're going it's just safer isn't it like it you, is you know you've got to you've got to use a bit of common sense and if you can't get out in a safe time or if you can't ride with a group then you've got to put your very convenient and yeah. time efficient for sure yeah, yeah. safer yeah I thought of something while she told me. <laughs> Welcome back. Yeah. He's had a half a beer and we're, yeah. we're good. We're good to go. He's yeah. told me many things, but he did say only in my career, the great athletes are consistent. You want to be a consistent athlete. You don't want to be the kind of athlete who could win a race and then disappears off the radar for five races. And so that was one bit of advice. And he, he always took a, um, a huge interest in me. I remember when I was still at uni, one of the first races I did was an ITU race, um, Auckland. I finished fourth and I got invited to train with the national team in Threadbow and he was there. And it was a very competitive environment, as you could imagine. And I did a couple of track sessions with Greg and afterwards he said to me, there's only a handful of triathletes in the world who could have done, done that session and two of them are right here. And I'm thinking, who's he talking about? Because there's only he and I right here. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, I, th- I think he was always very good for me in... Um, because I never had a coach and because I didn't come up like a lot of the other guys did as a triathlete through the junior programs or as a runner, an elite runner or swimmer, I think I never had that feedback that I was good or I could be good. And I think he saw that in me and he always took me under his wing. I remember another time he 
he was living in San Diego, but he'd come home for Christmas and he called me up and we went and had a game of golf at Woolaware Golf Course and then he invited me over for lunch and he was asking me all about my training and, you know, I think when you're a young athlete and a multiple world champion takes interest in you like that, that is the affirmation that sometimes you need. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can imagine as a young athlete, if you come up through the junior ranks and the junior programs and you're making state teams and winning medals, you're getting that affirmation that you're good and that your training's on the right track. But when you're on your own, I mean, I was never a junior. I started as a 21-year-old. And at that time, juniors was 20 and under. So I was never a junior in the sport. I mean, I was still playing soccer at 20. So I don't think mentally I had that affirmation that I felt I could be good, but you don't know. Is my training on track? Am I doing the right sort of things? So to have Greg take such an interest in me, we'd go play golf, we'd talk about training. He'd always check in with me, see how I was going. And I mean, I was nobody. I was still a full-time uni student at that time, had, had a part-time job. And he'd won four world titles. So I think he could see the physical abilities because I just used to do these track sessions with him. He'd be like, wow, man, you can, you can do something special. But I think he also sensed that I just had no coach and I had no one reinforcing that I was on the right path. So I think he assumed that role for me. I don't know if he knowingly did it, but he did it mm. early in my career. And it was it would always fill me with oxygen, so to speak, when I'd have a chat with him because I would feel like I was on the right path. And uh, so it was more his presence and his time more than any particular things that he said. I guess my relationship with him was more about that. And he's um, yeah, sort of taking me under his wing. Well, that's important. You need the confidence along the way, don't you? I think so. I mean, if you look at the way sport's structured these days and you look at some of these tennis players who are, you know, that young girl in Wimbledon who's 15, and, but she's been playing at a high level for f- four or five years. She's won junior Grand Slams and under 15 Grand Slams. I think part of your development as an athlete is mental, not only physical. Mm. Having the confidence but also knowing how to negotiate a Grand Slam, for instance, Mm. how to warm up, how to deal with the pressure in the media. And if you've never experienced that, you know, you you couldn't imagine that a tennis player at 22 could be dropped in the middle of the Grand Slam and A, be good enough, but B, just know how to navigate the whole whole two weeks, Mm. how it all works. But part of your grooming and coming through the junior ranks is it's preparing you mentally as well as physically. Mm. Plus, if you're doing well, you're getting that affirmation that, yeah, I'm good, the media are interested in me, High-level coaches are trying to recruit me. You get that sense, and that's that's where that innate confidence comes from, I think. So later on, you know, they say there's no such thing as an overnight sensation. It might be the first time we've seen someone, but they've really had that champion's mindset and been on the big stage for a long time. Speaking of mindset, we, um, as as Hattie alluded to before, we we interviewed uh, Rory Darkins, who's a, a mental skills coach, and um, he was. He was talking about psychological tools that you use to assist you in performance. And did you, um, you, you spoke earlier about what you do to, to manage anxiety pre race. What would you do during the event? Did you have any mantras or anything? That I, had, I did have one. I just had one question that I would ask What can I do right now? Hmm. And I would ask that often throughout the race, but also in training and in the lead up. Is there more I could be doing right now? Because I think you need to break it down into, particularly if you're process-driven, is there, is there something, even if there is nothing you can do, I think just doing that systems check often lets you feel like, okay, I'm on top of things here, I'm, you know, I'm checking all the boxes. And there might be nothing you need to do right now. Maybe your pacing's great, maybe your nutrition's good, your cooling strategies are good, yeah, I'm, 
paying attention to all those things. But just even asking that question gives you the sense that you're being proactive, even if there's no answer or nothing to do. But I think that's a good, because it breaks it down. It's a good mantra. For, it was a good mantra for me. It broke it down. And I'd like to be able to do something or feel that I was doing something anyway. So um, that was the only mantra I had. What can, what can I do right now to improve my situation? That's perfect. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah, mental checklist. Coming back to the now, Rory would have liked that one. Yeah. Mm. And, and what about... Um, is, Training wise, what sessions can't you miss each week? Like, what are your what are your favourite sessions that you that you'd recommend to other people each week that you don't um, want to miss out on? You know, I think if you're trying to win a world title, or even if you're just a first timer, I think core strength and stability, I think, is a good foundation um, for two reasons: injury prevention. When you move properly, less chance of being injured. Also, performance when you're efficient. I mean, when you do a, an activity that just requires the same motion over and again. Hmm. So the longer races, even a two-hour race, it's not about speeding up as such. It's more about not slowing down. Um, so I think I once heard a good analogy. You can't fire a cannon off a canoe. You need a stable. <laughs> Is this after they tried a few times? And we're like, yeah, no, maybe. You need that strong foundation, you know. If, if you, you, know, you look at a great runner, they're very strong through the core. When their foot is landing, hopefully under their centre of mass and they're driving, if your body's collapsing, a lot of that forward motion is being lost. But if it's a stable base, it's, everything's driving you forward. forward. Yeah, so... How, how often do you do core sessions? I was doing it three or four times a week. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Still do it now? Yes, I do, yeah. 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 Similar sort Can't of routine, maybe? Can't tell he does it three or four times a week. Well, I, I actually uh, saw your video. I, I watched your video. It's some pretty good uh, exercise tips. I never, I never put the really good ones in those videos. No, you don't give away too much. And I was always so distracted. I'd be like, I just want to go out and train. No, we need to shoot a video. Okay, what are we doing? Chorus. Okay, quick, let's go. <laughs> let's do these three. <laughs> but um, look, the honest truth is there's no real secrets. You can Google them and there's millions. Yeah. And the great thing is there's ones that are very specific to whatever activity you're trying to do. And often it's not about strengthening those muscles, it's just about activation because a lot of them are smaller postural muscles that just stabilize and hold the pelvis. So it's about learning mental cues and, and things that turn them on and keep them turned on. What about uh, regarding that efficiency? We've got a lot of runners listening to this going out for a run while they're listening. Um, any little biomechanical tips you might be able to give them to, to help with that efficiency on the run? I never thought about too much other than I was never huge on run drills, although I do think they're beneficial. I guess that's one of the disadvantages of never having a coach. Mm. I never did all of the, the finer details, which I think are important, because it's all about muscle activation and turning the muscles on at the right time and in the right combination, isn't it? I mean, and to learn any skill, you break it down into small components and practice those and then build on that. So I, I do believe drills are good, but it just comes down to how much time you've got to spend. But I used to just concentrate on... Leg turnover mm. and leaning forward. Okay. That's it. Perfect. Leg turnover. Once I had my core turned on, I just think cadence. I think the tendency is when you get tired is to overstride. Mm. But you always want your foot to land under your center of mass, mm. which on a, when you break it down and slow it down frame by frame is what it does. Even though you bring your knee up, it looks like you land in front, you don't. Yeah. So leg turnover, cadence, and, and yeah, just... Being nice and relaxed and upright, but leaning. A little lean forward. Yeah, from the from the sternum. Yeah. Okay. Don't bend at the hips. That's perfect. Perfect. I'm glad you mentioned cadence. We might go to our shoe review with Sean Tindale from Ranala. 
G'day, Sean. How are you going? Good, mate. How are you? Very good. Thanks for having us. This is our first shoe review. I'm very excited. As am I, yeah. Looking forward to it and looking forward to doing many more. Yeah. It's, uh, it's nice to be down here in your store at Renala. Very nice setup you've got here. Thank you. So uh, we're going to talk about the Hocker Torrent. Yes. So I've been in them for about a week now, and I'm loving them. Uh, done three runs. One of them on Sunday, I ran 40Ks in them. And I must say, they're an off-road shoe. Like, it feels like you you know, it's it's the four-wheel drive version of, of shoes. Yes. And yeah. um, I'm, I'm amazed because I've just, normally I do all my running in, in a road shoe. And this is the first sort of trail shoe I've had in as long as I can remember. And, mate, I've, I've been missing out, really, because most of my running's off-road. And uh, it's incredible, uh, you know, the grip and the balance that you get when you're running across rocks and in the mud. And the I'm just not slipping and skating as I, as I do sometimes. Yeah. So, man, I'm, I'm loving being in the, in the torrent. Yeah, well, the torrent is uh, a replacement of the Speed Instinct. Uh, if you remember that shoe, it was... Um, they had a bit of problems with the upper, so it was taken off and then replaced with the torrent. So um, it's a nice... It's a trail racer, basically. Nice and light. It's not your traditional bulky hocker shoe that you see in the range. Most of them have got about 32 to 33 mil uh, cushioning in the heel and then about 28 in the forefoot. So which is a lot of sole. The hocker torrent drops down to 23 in the heel and about 18 in the forefoot. So you're dropping down 10 mil um, lower to the ground. So making the shoe about still on a 5 mil pitch, but about 40 to 50 grams lighter. So that's why it's it's a trail racer. Yeah, I'm surprised much. actually at how light it is. Like yeah, 254 grams. Yeah, definitely, I'm, I'm definitely racing. They, they feel good. Yeah, nice yes. Time. Scott Richmond, the winner of the Royal Double Ultra day one, loves the shoe. Yeah. Runs in it all the time and really rates it. Yep. No, I can see, I can see why. And I guess um, the... The torrent would be a good transition for someone from that's used to wearing road shoes yep. in, into hockers because it's it does it's not like your typical hocker, is it? Yeah, it's not that really high off the ground. So someone coming from wearing a sort of a minimalistic type trail shoe um, or low profile trail shoe, easy transition straight into it. Still got that little bit of cushioning, and as you said, the grip it's got a multi directional lug pattern and on the bottom. Um, so gives you the confidence when you're running in all sorts of weather, um, whether it be Lady Carrington, open fire trails, or a bit of technical stuff like Lady uh, Honeymoon Stairs. Uh, it's just giving you that confidence when you're going over different terrain, yeah. technical or, or open fire trail. Yeah, I'm really liking it. I'm, I'm finding too that uh, initially it felt a bit hard, the shoe, but yeah. three runs in, it feels a lot softer. Yeah. It's a, it's and a that's nice. what we want to hear. As the shoe... As you run more in the shoe, it gets better. Yeah. And that's uh, that's exactly what, what, what the feedback that I'm getting. It's got a nice breathable upper on the top as well. Um, as well as what I like about it, it's got a protective layer around the toe box um, to protect your toes from sticks and rocks. And it doesn't have that. Uh, we've, we've never had any come back with toes going through the mesh. Uh, which we sometimes get a lot with trail trail shoes. Your toe will come through that mesh, but because of the protective layer around that toe box, uh, nice and strong. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. 
You're not, you're not going to put me in any sandals, are you? What, what sandals are you stocking? Still got the offers. We will, we will be doing a review on those. We'll get you in a pair of those I, as well. I, I just wanted to hear you say oofa. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> but obviously, the, the Tyrant as well has got a dual-density midsole, so uh, nice and cushioned on landing, and that gives you good, good propulsion on toe-off. So really nice and responsive as well. Um, and... The beauty of it is, yeah, going downhill, you get that nice cushion landing, but obviously climbing and jumping, getting that nice responsive toe off. It's, I'm pleasantly surprised. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be hard to beat, actually. That's what I want to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's, it's ticking all the boxes for me. So looking around your shop too, I, I, I know we're only talking, um, it's, it's a shoe review, but I've just spotted your utility belt and I'm, I love running in the utility belt. You can chuck your, uh, you can take chuck your soft flask and go for a, a run in it with your take your water with you and your keys yep. and your phone and the whole thing. So well, there you go. I I'm a one for I hate having running with things in my hand. Um, so the utility belt is a fantastic option. It fits nice and snug around your waistline and it's got the capacity, as you said, to store a 500 ml flask, uh, your phone, keys, credit card. Because you never know, you might be running past the shop and need to call in and buy some goo energy gels. <laughs> Plenty of room for those as well. Good, good, good product <laughs> placement, I like it. Have you had the new Hoppy Trails? I have. Yeah. Very nice. What do you think? Yeah, I love them. Yeah. It's nice. I had one a couple of days ago. I High expectations of it tasting just like a filter, but it didn't... No, it doesn't no. taste like beer at all. No, no. it doesn't, no. But it's, it's nice, natural. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll talk, I'm looking at your vest as well, but we'll talk about that off air, but I'm looking forward to trying on a vest before I leave today. Yeah, we've got the Solomon and Ultimate Direction vests as well, and we always talk about the importance of getting correctly fitted with your shoes. I think it's just as equally important when you're getting the, buying the vests. Um, a lot of people that are buying the vests are doing a lot of distance, whether it be 20, 30, 50, 100 Ks. So you're going to be in the the vest for a long period of time so it's it's good to get that feel and get that correct fit um, if it's too tight it's going to be restrictive your technique's going to be out um, or if it's too big it's going to be moving around causing chafing so it's always good to come in and get correctly fitted by myself or Jen and we can help you out yeah in, uh, in whatever event you're doing but uh, but often I often get asked as well can I wear the uh, hocker torrent on the road I would suggest not. Um, it's, as I said to you before, it's got a really aggressive multi-directional um, lug pattern, and wearing it on the road, you're going to you're going to wear it out. Yeah, it quite feels quickly. it feels like a trail shoe. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. So I just stick to stick to trail. That's for the Hocker Torrent. Yeah, it has been. It's obviously versatile as well. We have had reviews back that it's been used as a hockey shoe as well. Yeah, and reviews have been really good. Yeah, yeah, That's, that would make sense. All right, well, um, thanks very much for giving up your time. And if any of the listeners want to get down to Renala, they mentioned Running Matters, they get a 10% discount. Exactly, and, yeah. And you're going to fit them and get them in the right shoe. Yeah, so that brings your utility belt down to $50. There you go. Yes. Cheapest bargain. Cheapest one getting bargain. Around. Absolutely. Sean, thanks for your time. Thanks, Matt. Speak to you soon. And we're back. Perfect timing. <laughs> so... Uh, I feel like we're on Wayne's world for a second there. Yeah, no, perfect. <laughs> what about uh, so? What what keeps you grounded? Like you're you're very humble. What do you, did you what do you put that down to? 
I think part of it is because I didn't do the sport growing up. I didn't have a hundred coaches telling me I was going to be good. And so I always wondered. And even after you win a world title or two, you wonder, did I just get lucky or, um, cause a lot of people have been able to win a big race or two. Um, yeah, I just, I just, I think the biggest, and don't get me wrong. I, I think just because you win a race or two, it doesn't give you the right to be an a-hole. So I think humility is, is very important. And I think in our sport, you see a lot of it because we all understand what a hard sport it is. And I think whether you're trying to win or just finish, you understand the challenges that everyone on the start line has faced and you've shared them together, basically. So, But I think, yeah, I mean, I started in the sport late, so I didn't, it's not like I was at all schools triathlon. I mean, they didn't even have it, I guess, when I was younger, but it's not like I was coming up through the junior ranks in triathlon and making state and Australian teams and getting that, I guess, positive affirmation that I was good. I, I didn't know. I thought I could be good at the sport, um, for sure. And I thought I could go a long way because, I mean, off my soccer training, all through high school, I'd make it through to state for athletics and cross country. And it wasn't until I came up against the actual kids who ran that I would get beaten. So I thought, oh, I must be a pretty good runner. Mm. Um, that being said, we did do quite a lot of fitness. I mean, I played soccer at quite a high level, so we did a lot of fitness work. Although it's, it's different. It's more explosive and agility side to side. But a soccer match still goes for 90 minutes, mm. um, you know, from I think about 13 or 14 years of age onwards. So, you know, soccer players have great aerobic conditioning. Um, but, yeah, I just I, – I, I never – it might sound strange to say I never thought I was – I mean, like I said, even when you win, you just – I wondered, am I good at this? I mean, I, I seem to be. Um, anyone can get lucky once or twice, though, I guess. And uh, I never felt entitled or, yeah, I don't know. And maybe I've thought about it quite a bit. I put it down to just not having been groomed from a young age for this sport. I played other sports. And even early in this sport, you know, I had a lot of failures. You do. Whatever level you reach as an athlete, the truth of the matter is you're going to lose a lot more than you win. Mm-hmm. So it's impossible to win. I mean, you look now at, even at tennis, I mean, Rogers, what's he won? 20 grand slams, but how many has he played? Mm-hmm. He's played 100 or something they were saying. So he's, he's won 20%, mm-hmm. and that's the greatest of all time, 20% win rate. Yeah. And it is special, Yeah. but it just shows the nature and how competitive sports are. You don't win all the time. So, I, you know, I think you do a fair amount of losing on your way, on your way up the mountain, and I think that does ground you. So a couple, a couple more questions just before we finish up, but have you got a, a good example of sportsmanship that you've seen or experienced that sort of sits with you? Yeah, 2009 in Kona was my third year there. And it was always interesting in Kona after an Olympic year because a lot of the ITU athletes would step up and that they're brilliant athletes. Um, you know, a lot of us came through that pathway before we got to the longer distances and 09 was no different. We had Andy Pott step up, Andreas Rayler, Rasmus Henning, Dirk Bockel, a whole bunch of guys who'd raced at the Olympics in 08. And I would always know the swim was going to be quick. So I upped my swim in 09 because I knew the front group would be a lot smaller and it was. And anyway, long story short, we get to Harvey. It's probably only seven or eight of us in the front group. And the way it works in Kona is as you're coming up to the turn, special needs is just on the other side of it. So you shout your number out. And then you make the turn and someone's got your bag and, and I was number one. So I've called out number one, gone into the turn. And when I've come out of the turn to grab my, what I used to try and do is I'd get to the front of the group up the climb to Harvey so I could get first go at the grabbing my bag. And um, 
they'd grab bag number 11, not bag number one. Uh-huh. So I gave it back. Anyway, about two minutes later, Andres Raylett comes pedaling up next to me with my special needs bag in his mouth. Wow. So someone had gone back and grabbed number one, and by the time he came through, he'd had his, he grabbed mine as well and brought it up to me. Mm. So I thought it was a really nice display of sportsmanship because I ended up winning that year and he got third. Yeah. Well, um, could have been the difference. Well, it's nutrition. Yeah. Um, it's very important. Yeah, so and he, he's a gentleman. He thought nothing of it. He's, I always bring it up when I see him, and he's like, it's... Never going to be able to win that way by taking your nutrition away, is it? Well, that's what he said. He said, I yeah. wouldn't have wanted to win that way. And so a lot of people would have, though. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's cutthroat, you know. Wow. I think it's cutthroat. I think if someone sees someone else missing their special needs, they might be like, yeah. That's my advantage. Yeah, for sure. But he didn't think that way. And um, yeah, I was certainly very grateful. You've passed on a lot of uh, valuable advice. Today, what's what's something that you, you'd like to, if there's one piece of advice you could pass on, what, what would it be? I think it's got to be fun. If you want to stay in it for a long time, it's got to be fun. So you've got to be able to mix it up, mix the training up, because at times it's just going to be a grind. I mean, it's consistency, right? So you're doing the same things over and again. But mix it up, make it more social, maybe ride or swim in some groups, run in some groups for sure. Uh, maybe go to some cross-country races or different track races just to mix the running up, you know. If you're getting tired of doing those sort of harder sessions on your own, um, find some individual discipline like open water swimming races or bike races to do. I think that makes it fun. So make it fun and just be consistent with your training. There's no secrets. And more training is good if you don't get sick and you don't get injured. Um, and be realistic about how much time you have to train and what your goals are. I think that helps in knowing that in the beginning. You know, in light of the consistency piece, if if you know you have legitimately and realistically eight hours a week to train, you're best off hitting that number week after week than maybe hitting 16 hours but other things in your life suffer. You've got to find a good balance. You've got to find a good balance that works for you physically but works for the rest of your life as well. Mm. Good advice. So where can people find you if they want to follow you, if they're not following you yet? Uh, where can you find me? Um, I guess I'm on Twitter and all these social media things, Instagram and Facebook. and <laughs> on Strava. Such disdain. You're on Strava. Um, I'm not on Strava. I probably should be. I'm on Zwift uh, once in a while. But, um, they're like a brown coffee shop in Cronulla. Yeah, I wish I was there more. Um, where I've got a website. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm easy to find. Just yeah. hit me up with a sort of a message on one of the social media platforms. I, I try and get back to the messages. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That's good. Okay. What, what about the, uh, the training coaching? Yeah, Sensiga. It's just Google us. We're around. We're, I'm lucky. I've got some great coaches like Brett working for me. Um, yeah, and we, we try to put on camps and clinics as well. Um, you know, the thing about coaching is is you can Google endurance training and find out everything you need to know. Great coaches are more than just the science, though. They they get to know an individual and they develop a trust and they're able to communicate well. And I'm lucky I've got, a, you know, all the people we have with us uh, sort of fit that mould. Um, and they've got a lot of experience as well in coaching people trying to qualify for world championships and win world championships but equally they have as much experience with first timers um so they're able to 
alter their thinking depending on what someone's level of ability is, what their time availability is, what their goals are, and all those things. So, yeah, I'm lucky. I've got a good crew. Uh, that's good. All right, well, we're going to uh, remind our listeners to subscribe or follow our podcast, and you can use the following discount codes. We'll visit Renala in store at Cronulla and mention Running Matters, get a 10% discount. Goo Energy Australia online. Um, Fractal Performance Running Caps online and then Surf Coast Century enter the race online. Two months to go. Two months ago, not long. And uh, but we'll, I'll put all those discount codes up at the end of the uh, the podcast. So thanks very much for uh, giving up your time coming in, having a beer with us, and uh, we'll have to catch up some other time, Brett, and reminisce about the real estate days. Won't take long, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe short. Yeah, short chat. That short one. chat. That one. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Over and out. Thank you. Thanks for the beer. Thanks, guys. Yeah.